Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, syndicating to your devices and on podcasts. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, reporting to you from the mountains of North Carolina in Asheville. And I'm joined as always on the other side of the continent by my uh, partner in crime and co-host, David Clement, over there in Toronto. David, how goes it? It's going well. It's going well. Um, yeah, I mean, not not too much um, to update other than maybe a quick teaser for whom our guest is. Okay, yeah, let's uh, jump into week. that because that's going to be a, a big thing. It might be why you even clicked on this if you're viewing it online or perhaps uh, yep. you're listening on the radio and you don't even know what's coming, what's about to hit you in the face. Yep. Yeah, so unless you lived under a rock or do not have Netflix... Um, you probably watched Netflix's Making a Murderer, uh, which was a case about Stephen Avery. Um, and we have Jerry Buting, who was one of Avery's defense attorneys in his first trial, back on the program. He is a certified friend of the show. Um, and he's going to be breaking down some of the big cases um, that we've seen in the U.S. Uh, so talking about the Rittenhouse trial and things like that and he also does some some fun debunking of uh, some very popular myths that are flying around in regards to some of these cases. So he's always great to have on the program. So that'll be uh, coming up in about uh, 13 minutes or so. Um, but yeah, very excited to have Jerry back on the program. He's always great. Great. Yeah, friend of the show there. Uh, so David, as I mentioned in the opening, uh, coming to you from the mountains of North Carolina, from Appalachia, mm-hmm. uh, Buncombe County. Um, as it's called so, here. Uh, actually, I do have to intervene here. Is it Appalachia or Appalachia? Well, because when I was in Boone, I kept saying Appalachian State, and everyone was like, no, it's Appalachian State. Well, it's State. Appalachian like, is how they say it down here. Okay. All Appalachia. Right. So That's I, what I people in know. Ohio say. Well, I think one guy turned to me in Boone was like, you must be, are you from the north? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, no. You're like, you could say I mean, that. Technically, yes. Yeah, <laughs> technically, I am from the north. So, uh, been here in Appalachia uh, for just about a day, not too long. Uh, flew all the way to D.C., took the car, went through the Shenandoah Valley, uh, uh-huh. through Virginia, made my way down to uh, North Carolina. And uh, Buncombe County, very interesting. It's the most liberal part of the entire state. So, this yep. is uh, where you'll see, you don't see as many uh, let's go Brandon signs, as I saw on the way in around town. <laughs> yeah. But the entire uh, oh, interstate, boy. let me tell you, boy, is littered with uh, let's go Brandons. <laughs> it's actually quite interesting. Um, so that's uh, it's been fun to be here and get out and about. And speaking of making a murderer, I asked everybody that I've been with, my brother's getting married, no one has seen it. And, and I'm very surprised by that because it was a cultural phenomenon at the time. And, you know, as we'll talk about with Jerry, it was a, a big deal. You had a lot of celebrities weighing mm-hmm. in. You had people who were watching the trial live or parts of the, the trial. You know, there's all kinds of, of stuff that's in pop culture related to this. Uh, but no, they, they haven't watched that. And uh, nobody knows anything about Bitcoin either. So um, I'm the village weirdo coming to town, I guess, David. <laughs> Your your crazy uncle Yael, he's back in town. You better watch out. He's gonna 
talk to you about this thing called cryptocurrency? Well, I think it goes to show that, you know, we have these, we call them filter bubbles, right? It's sort of mm-hmm. your online presence and persona. And I think you and I are prob- we're pretty much in the same bubble. You know, we might have a few yeah. things where you're a bit more into, like you're in, you're on hockey Twitter or something like that, or I'm on NASCAR yeah, yeah, Twitter. Yeah. So, you know, we have our divergent interests, but for the most part, you know, I'd say our filter bubbles are pretty much the same. Uh, but there are people who exist way outside of that, that thanks to the algorithms, you don't really see. And uh, yeah, now true. it seems you wanted to bring a story here to the program, um, not just because of the algorithm, but because of the platforms. Uh, there's a couple of accounts we won't see anymore, particularly on yeah, Twitter. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I don't know, maybe they violated Twitter's terms of services, but I don't think they did. One of them was an account that tracks Nancy Pelosi's stock trades. So it gives updates in regards to what she's doing with her portfolio, because technically a lot of that is public information. You just, it's, you'd have to know where to find it. Um, uh, very quick on that, there, David. That only came about in the last, I think it was about eight years ago. And uh, yeah. Peter Schweitzer wrote a book, uh, you know, throw the bums out or throw them all out. And basically, they did pass a law whereby all of the transactions had to be made public record. However, mm-hmm. many circumstances, it's very hard to get to it. And it's like in a public ledger printed on a book in a library in Congress. And as far as I know, you're not really supposed to take pictures. Uh, some of it has come out more with public information because they've updated the law. But this is only the last couple of years that we've been able to see it. And it's fairly general. It's like they, they bought anywhere between ten to $25,000 worth of stock, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Well, this account seemed to be breaking some of it down, um, which I think is just, it. one, it was hilarious because the backstory there is Nancy Pelosi appears to basically beat the market every year. Oh, and she's um, a hundred millionaire, her and her husband. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so they got blocked which I was very disappointed about because I followed them because out of interest. It's like, oh, what, what's, she, what's she shorting today? What should I pick? What should I, what should I put on my <laughs> list, everybody? Yeah, how do, how do I fade Nancy Pelosi and beat the market too? Uh, and then another one, which we've mentioned on the show, was the court case tracker for Ghislaine Maxwell. And again, they were just providing like real-time updates, I, I I guess from the courthouse maybe, I don't know, on what was going on. Maybe they dipped into the conspiracy theory world and that's where their strikes came from. I don't really know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is Twitter's platform. They can do whatever they want. But we are off to a tough start with uh, Twitter's new CEO. And, and ironically, people were digging up his old tweets, which were also not good. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll talk about the Maxwell trial, just to give a little bit of t- a teaser. We, we'll talk about that with uh, Jerry Buting coming up here after the break. Uh, so we'll get some good stuff there. David, I got a product review here in our consumer corner. Okay. Yep. If you're good for it. Yeah, let's hear it. What do you got? <laughs> I'm going to sound like a company man here, but um, I'm looking here at an Oculus Quest 2. Oh. I have joined the metaverse. Okay, okay. So for for the boomers listening, explain to them what that means. So Oculus is a company that creates a virtual reality headset with controllers. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it was an independent company, probably started out in Silicon Valley. I don't know. I have to double check that. It was acquired by Facebook, now Meta, and it played very prominently in the rebrand uh, that Mark Zuckerberg launched there about what, a month and a half ago around Facebook and Meta. And uh, the idea of the metaverse is uh, it's going to take place there, and there's going to be virtual reality in the headset. So I've only tested it a little bit, right? I've tested it for a couple of hours last night, and I did so this morning with some of our colleagues. Uh, I had Fred and Fabio on, and we we're trying to do a meeting. <laughs> it didn't work out too well because somebody didn't update their software. But overall, amazing product. I haven't even okay. played a you know one hundredth of the games on here, and they have Medal of Honor. You know they've got tennis, they've got a hockey slap shot game, which you would love. Cool. They've got all kinds of great exercise programs, and there's a good amount there. So I see this for any of our future campaigns about obesity and sugar taxes. It's like why don't we just get schools some Oculus Quests? And they can they can do their sports stuff on there, or you know if they they win a prize and they can bring it home and work out at home. Yeah, that actually sounds pretty cool. I I saw a story, I think one of our colleagues shared somebody got married in the metaverse. True, true. Yeah, there's a there are a lot of things you can do. I mean, what I think is interesting about the entire idea of the metaverse is that you know, everyone's saying, oh, well, Facebook is just trying to take it over. Well, it's actually a lot of independent app developers, much like the apps oh, that cool. you and I love, you know, whether it's for our email or for our social media mm -hmm. or for mm -hmm. photos. So there's a lot of independent third-party apps that people create, and they're able to make it for this platform. It's an open environment. You know, they create an app store similar to your phone or to your computer, and you can test all these different things out. And I just found that, I mean, there's a feature where you can sit at your desk and mm -hmm. it it basically, because it has a camera on the outside, can actually scan your hands. So you can move your hands around in front of you, and you can actually motion and swipe and do all of things, and it will pick up that those actions basically around 95%. Oh, that's pretty cool. So I guess that's how you could actually, like, interact and... Yes, yes. And you have these little, you know, you have these little dongles, these little controllers as well that you can move yep. around. Uh, but again, the apps are cool. The, the games, apparently, that's where most of the innovation is happening. Uh, obviously, it's yeah. a lot of shooter games and stuff like that, or little sports games. Uh, but I think this is really interesting. I mean, it's it's a high cost barrier. You know, if uh, if you're in the U.S., one of these is, it'll set you back about three hundred dollars, mm -hmm. which isn't too bad. And it's about what how much it costs, you know, back in the day to buy a PS2 and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did did you see the funny video that uh, I don't know who it was, but it, it made the rounds on social media. It was a, it was a guy filming his girlfriend play. I think it was the boxing game and she was boxing and like fighting in the game. And then in the game, I think she like missed a punch and got hit with an uppercut <laughs> and she fell over into the wall oh, God. and like banged her face off the wall Yeah, I mean because it was just, she was like so immersed into the game that she obviously didn't like her brain registered like oh i need to like try and duck this <laughs> there there are a lot over. of little safety measures in there like you do a play area so you are supposed to clear everything yeah. around you and if you go outside the bounds like the grids will pop up so you're kind of forewarned yeah. danger danger yeah. yeah 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 but overall it's really cool and again i've only been able to test it a, a couple, handful of times i still think it's very cool i know that there's a lot of like climbing games and uh, mm -hmm. You know, you can create your own living room with their own thing, or you can be in space. 
And there's a guy that I know actually uh, met many years ago who ha- its company has I don't want to name the the thing because uh, mm-hmm, we don't mm-hmm. get any advertising dollars from him. Uh, but <laughs> essentially, they launched a satellite into space with a huge camera, and you connect that to your Ooh. VR system, so you can actually be in space. That's cool. And the satellite so is, like look at you know, Earth. it's moving at whatever it is, 17,500 uh, miles an hour, whatever the speed yeah. is. And then you're able to, like, see stuff. You can see the Earth. You can turn and see the moon. It's, like, really fascinating. So I, I know That's it's cool. going to it's gonna be a while, I think, until this becomes mainstreamed. Yeah. Uh, until then, it'll be the but, first adopters. Uh, it'll be the crypto bros. It'll be, you know, the tech people. I mean, mainstream enough for people to get married, but I do have a, a question for you. Go ahead. If you get married in the metaverse, how can you have an open bar? And if you don't have an open bar, are you legally married? <laughs> I'm pretty sure there are <laughs> options for the open bars and all uh, this kind of stuff. There's, I mean, really, <laughs> the stuff that they're able to design, and there's going to be a lot more innovators who are going to do this kind of stuff. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. But either way, we'll wrap yeah, that up. Yeah. I know there's uh, other topics that we're looking at. Um, really excited to talk with uh, Jerry Buting. And, of course, if you guys yep. are listening to this on the podcast, consider getting a Podcasting 2.0 client over there on newpodcastapps.com. You can actually directly send your Bitcoin or cryptocurrency uh, directly while you're listening. So we get a little major yeah. Of support. Send us some love. Send us some love. Send them. Send us some love. We'll we'll, we'll hold. Um. <laughs> hodl. Hodl. Yeah. Hodl. There you go, hodl. David. Hold on for dear life. There we go. I gotta get. Uh, I'm like a 31 year old going on 50. Uh, a little bit of a little, little as, boomer as, tendency here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as you've probably identified, working uh, with me over the years, I am. That I, I have. am not. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not that technologically literate for someone of my age but i'm working on no you're getting there and look it's all uh you know one step at a time and we always have to make things easier and the easier that you can make stuff uh you know the more that people are able to try out different products and test them the more success that we're going to have and has everything to do with with policy you know everything that we mentioned uh, whether it be something coming to the market that's new like cannabis or other products there's there's always great stuff to come so yeah, David, I'm pumped up. I'm excited for our interview. I guess uh, we'll, we'll toss it uh, to Jerry Buting after this break. You guys are listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, uh, coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region of Ontario and the Big Talkers, 106.7 FM, out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, Our next guest needs no introduction for listeners uh, of our program because he is a certified friend of the show and a repeat guest. Um, Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, criminal defense attorney Jerry Buting. Thank you. It's good to be back on. Good to see you guys. Great, great. So, I mean, it's um, we've obviously had some very, very high-profile criminal cases with a lot of media scrutiny um, over the last, let's say, month or so with the Rittenhouse trial, the Arbery trial, Ghislaine Maxwell, 
Juicy Smollett. It feels like um, a lot of eyes are on some of these big criminal cases, and so we figured who better to have uh, on the program than yourself to chat about some of these things. And so I wanted to start um, just with a very broad question in regards to the Rittenhouse um, trial, what your um, what your perception is as someone who um, has defended folks, uh, maybe not in a similar case to that, but certainly criminal proceedings in Wisconsin. Um, what's your perspective on how that case proceeded, maybe how the media was involved, uh, and things like that? Yeah, you know, the uh, that was an interesting case, and in part because people could actually see it live streamed, but there was um, there was video of the key points during the um, the offenses that were charged, and no question that those videos helped the defendant. Um, I think it was pretty clear that he, uh, you know, ha had a right to defend himself uh, with people chasing him and whatnot. On the other hand, the people that were chasing him uh, may have, you know, thought he was a mass shooter. I mean, you know, what do you do with somebody in that scenario? So there was an interesting interplay of, of those circumstances. Really, the case, I think, came down to the issue of provocation, because if you provoke an, an encounter um, with another individual, you lose the, the right to self-defense until you withdraw and then, you, you know, if you're being re-engaged, then you can get the right to self-defense being stated. And so I think there was a lot of issue, uh, a lot of discussion uh, in the trial about that, that the prosecution got that jury instruction on provocation. Um, and a lot of, maybe a lot of viewers thought, well, you know, just showing up to a protest with an AR-15, um, openly carrying, displaying, uh, isn't that provocation? Probably not under the law. Um, you know, some people maybe think it should be, but that act alone would not necessarily fall within the, de the usual common law or statutory definition of what is adequate or inadequate provocation by someone charged with an offense. So I can understand the jury verdict in that case, um, given the evidence that they was presented to them. Um, they certainly had a, a, uh, a good judge for the defense, uh, unusually so, because he's not typically a judge that is considered uh, defense-oriented, uh, but there was definitely a lot of rulings and some, he's always been a quirky guy, but some of the rulings that were much more favorable for the defense in that case than in almost any other case I've ever seen. Uh, that certainly helped the defense as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think what made this case, I mean, apart from the facts of the case and everything, was, as you mentioned, that it was on camera, everybody was live streaming it, and we had an insight into what the prosecution's case was, what the defense cases was. And it's, for me, very interesting because often... Um, I think you would agree that our, our criminal justice system and, and sort of the law and order types are all in on the prosecution. And in this case, people are breaking down the errors of the prosecution almost in real time. Uh, so what was that like for you kind of seeing that? It's not necessarily about the facts of the case, but more how we're consuming it. You know, it's not through a long burn Netflix documentary, wink, wink. But also this is instantaneous. It's live. You have people that are tweeting like crazy. 
I mean, I don't know, I don't know what it'd be like for you uh, if you have this in your next next case where you have an entire, uh, I guess, jury of peers behind you. Uh, well, you know, actually, in the Avery case, the uh, that was being live streamed, and there were um, hundreds of people um, messaging us and tweeting, including um, some pretty well known people, uh, uh, Chris Darden. Uh, who was one of the prosecutors in the O.J. Simpson case and was at that time a law professor by then, um, he would actually uh, email or tweet or, you know, uh, comment on what, what would happen that day. So we got some real-time feedback. Um, you have to be careful as a defense lawyer in, in taking too much from that because it's, it, you know, there there is a tendency to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe this jury uh, took what I said the wrong way. Um, certainly in the other case of um, the McMichael case, um, Armand Arbery, there was a lot of criticism about some of the things that the defense attorneys were saying, particularly in the closing argument. And you worry about whether that has an effect on the jury. Um, in my own case, in the Avery case, actually, the jury was not sequestered um, until deliberations. Uh, in, in the Arbery, or I'm sorry, in the Rittenhouse case, they weren't sequestered at all, even during deliberation, which is a little unusual because the the risk of of being tainted by by publicity might be greater under under those circumstances. But I would go home uh, on the weekends for maybe twenty four hours um, during the Avery case, and one day we had a uh, like a, a soccer party after indoor soccer with a bunch of parents there, and people had watched my cross examination of the crime lab analyst and. I remember one one parent who was uh, like a lab tech herself thought I was too hard on her. And, you know, I, so I started thinking, well, you know, maybe the jury is going to feel the same way. And so I actually, I don't know if you call it pulled a punch, but in my closing argument, I actually said something about it and, you know, um, apologized if anybody took offense, but made it clear that that's, this is my job and they shouldn't hold it against my client. So, you know, you do have to be concerned about it, but it is, you have to be careful you don't take too much uh, uh, from what people might be, you know, tweeting or commenting about what you've done in a live stream trial. Now on, on um, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but I'll call it jury integrity, um, because I know that that came up um, in this case as the jury was selected for the Rittenhouse trial, where members of the jury were legitimately scared um, that their identities would be known essentially by either opposing view, the, the Rittenhouse's guilty crowd on Twitter and the Rittenhouse's not guilty crowd on Twitter. Um, how much does that play, the, the decision to sequester the jury or not? Um, how much does that play, do you think, in regards to a fair trial? Well, you know, having jurors afraid of doing their job is not a good thing for our justice system. We need people to be honest and um, have personal integrity to be able to do what's right, not what they're afraid the consequences will be. And so during jury selection, I mean, this has always been an issue, even even without a high-profile case, There's if there's enough of a, a coverage about it, um, during jury selection, lawyers, defense lawyers, and prosecutors have often asked prospective jurors that 
you know, hey, are you going to be concerned about after you render your verdict, going back to your community and being criticized by your family or your friends or neighbors or whoever co-workers it might be? Um, it's much bigger scale when it's a high profile case, particularly one that's split down the middle with very passionate people on each side. Each side. Um, so it used to be really until maybe the last 40 years or so, um, we did not have anonymous jurors, uh, anonymous, anonymous juries. Um, and then they began to creep into the system when there were... Um, like mafia prosecutions or gang prosecutions where there were some actual threats before trial um, or uh, if not threats of individual jurors because they hadn't been picked yet, but that there was uh, threats of witnesses or um, intelligence, so to speak, that, that the um, mafia people involved or the people in a gang that may have supported the defendant were um, we're going to do something to, to threaten the integrity of the trial. And so they began to do um, juries where people were not identified. Um, and initially it became a problem because they started doing that where even the, the defense attorneys didn't know or, or the prosecutor um, who these people were. They weren't even told their names. It was juror one, two, three, whatever. And the courts said that that's, that's improper, that you you don't have a right to a public trial uh, and a fair trial unless at least the attorneys know that information. Then, So then they started doing numbers jury where information is shared privately uh, with the attorneys and the judge who are prosecuting the case, litigating the case, but, but not the general public. And so now that has become commonplace. And when you say anonymous in, in, in regards to the defense attorney not knowing who they were, would they still see the jury in front of them? They would see the, in those cases that they, they would see the jury, but they would not know who they were. They were not ah, okay. told their names. They were, they were referred to by the judges, you know, with initials or something. Um, they were not told their names. They were not given any background information about them. And that was ruled to be improper. Um, what you now see more commonly when there's a, uh, a risk to the jury integrity is that um, they are, not to be referred to publicly during the jury selection, questioning or anything uh, by name, um, but they, if they fill out questionnaires ahead of time with background information, that's supposed to be shared with both the defense and prosecutors. Um, it's still, there are some very specific rules and, and rulings of when a judge should or should not allow that. Certain factors have to be made and some, some judges just think that if there's any any publicity that's enough uh, to use that kind of jury's um, numbers jury or anonymous jury to the public. But, you know, that clashes with the public's right to know as well. You know, who are these people? Might they have some um, unfair connection to the judge or to the prosecutor or to the defendant? And the public has a right to know too. So there's an interesting t tension there and it's, it's supposed to be limited. Now, in a very high-profile case, particularly where there might be threats to the jury's safety, it's pretty common. Um, and in the Rittenhouse case, there was an allegation even that a that, uh, television reporter or somebody working allegedly for one of the networks was pursuing them and trying to take pictures of them. Um, 
And that would, that would be completely uh, impermissible because it might impact the jury and their ability to be fair and impartial if they know that, that someone's already coming after them, almost like paparazzi or something. Oh, yeah. There's uh, probably a ton of that that uh, is kept at bay, thankfully, by some of these measures. Uh, Jerry, I have a question about uh, sort of the prosecution and when they lay charges. And one trend that a lot of people are picking up on is the DAs or whomever kind of does the initial charges. In many cases, when it's a very public uh, trial or a very public incident, uh, will seem to lay down the charges very, very heavy. And uh, the example that I'm thinking of just right now is we have this school shooter uh, situation in Michigan, and I believe his parents have been in charge with involuntary manslaughter in one of these cases. Uh, we saw the sort of rack of charges against Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, I know that a lot of people who are on the uh, defense side have been always very critical of, of prosecutors' offices and ADAs and the like for these. But is this something that is a general trend? Is this something that perhaps is tapering off? Or is it just something that people are just now learning about that has been happening for a long time? I think it's the latter. Uh, people who work in the system know this has been going on for a very long time. Um, prosecutors overcharge frequently. And, um, you know, they're supposed to ethically not charge something unless they believe they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. But you do see a lot of times where they just pile on. Um, and the hope is sometimes that it's a negotiation strategy, that if they, they raise the ante uh, of, uh, for a defendant who chooses to exercise the right to a trial, you know, you could end up getting a rocket ride to prison or in many cases, mandatory prison. Uh, but if you take this deal, you know, um, this is what happens. Prosecutors make these offers uh, to, to reduce the charges. Now, that sometimes backfires because uh, the public doesn't really understand that. And if a prosecutor, uh, I've had a case where a prosecutor did that, really never intending that the case would, would uh, go to a verdict or would require a guilty plea to that serious a charge. But by the time the case was getting closer to trial, it, the, the public pressure against any reduction, they would have looked like they were being soft um, on this particular defendant for them to have reduced it to what it really was and what it really should have been charged as all along. So sometimes it backfires against the prosecution when they do that. Um, but uh, we, you know, this has been going on for a long, long time. And I think it's the public is just now waking up to it and, and seeing how, how prosecutors can use this. And on the note of, of that pressure, um, how much do you think some of these um, DA positions or ADA positions being elected officials plays into that, where, and this may be my own biases coming through because as a Canadian, I view that as a very weird. That's and a Canadian bias all the way. That's what because, it is. <laughs> yeah, because it, it for at least from my perspective, it feels as though then you are laying charges based on your own electability, which feels to me like that would skew on public perception. Um, but I'm not sure. Maybe that's not accurate. Maybe you have a different opinion on this. Um, so do you feel no, that that I, plays a role? I think you're right. I, I think it does play a role, but it's not just uh, uh, with prosecutors, with judges too. Um, not every state, only about half of the states now in America have uh, local state court judges elected. Um, many of them are appointed. 
Um, people complain that there's problems there too because they could be patronage jobs. The governor um, just hands out to people who maybe not have don't have the merit. Um, it's like you sometimes see with ambassadorships uh, handed out to smaller countries um, that are more like a political payoff for supporters. But but some of the states have countered that and said, well, look, we have we will have panels that will go through the merits of any applicant and um, you know the the governor can pick from that to a point. Uh, but certainly when you have elected positions, whether it is a judge or whether it is a prosecutor, uh, it is very difficult for them to separate the political risk in their decisions from um, their ethical responsibilities. They're human. Um, it is, you know, uh, I'll take the Brendan Dassey case uh, as illustrated in making a murderer. Um, a lot of people were really troubled after making a murder about how could that confession be admissible? How could that even come in? Uh, he was coerced. He was this or that. Well, you know, it was a close call in that case. Uh, for me, it was obviously coerced, but even legally, it was a, a kind of a call that if the case hadn't been so high profile, maybe the judge might, a judge might have thrown it out and said that this was a coerced involuntary confession and can't be admitted. But in a high profile case, that judge was never going to rule that the, the confession was inadmissible. The, the state's entire case would have collapsed without it, really. And he would never have been reelected. He would never have had the support of the local police. And they probably would have drafted another person to run against him in his next election. Well, you see that same kind of concern with prosecutors. Um, some of them, it's not just, you know, can they get reelected to their current position, but some of them have ambition and they tend to seek higher office, maybe a statewide attorney general, and they can, um, take this high profile case that's been, you know, sort of dumped in their lap and, and make something of it. Um, and, you know, not, it's not always a conscious level uh, pressure because I think most prosecutors do try and be fair. You know, they do know that they have rules of ethics that bind them and they're supposed to seek justice, not convictions, but in the heat of battle and public pressure, sometimes that's just very difficult. Yeah, and the, the public pressure, um, for one, I, I want to get on that real quick, David, because you mentioned the uh, reporter that might have been tailing the bus of the jurors and it became a thing. And, you know, at least for the Rittenhouse trial and the Arbery trial, the media is a spotlight and is there in the room. Uh, you know, you have all the comments that are going on day in and day out. Is this something that overall helps one particular side? Does it help, you know, the more the defense? Does it help more the prosecution? Or does it help perhaps knowledge of how our system works? Or does it muddy it? Because, um, you know, I'm, I come from the journalism world and I find most of my time criticizing uh, my former profession. But I'm wondering for you, and, and as a criminal defense attorney, if at times it's been helpful. Obviously, um, you know, your career and the highlight on your work is, has been very positive, but there has to be other circumstances where they haven't been too helpful. Oh yeah, I would say 95% or more of the time, a, a high pro profile, high publicity case is not good for the defense because what happens is people are making snap judgments. Um, the media almost always, whether consciously or otherwise, will seek the narrative that is most sensational, that is most likely to draw viewers and interest. 
that may not be the actual truth, um, but it may appear that way initially. Sometimes it's generated because of um, prosecutors having press conferences and, and publicly stating uh, a particular narrative before the defense has had an ability to do that. Uh, but it is, that's generally what people read and hear. And somebody's charged, it's on the front page of the newspaper, it's on all over the news um, before they have heard anything other than the side of law enforcement. And that is often not the case in a, in a close case. Um, so, uh, you know, the media does have a, a major role in these cases. Now it's interesting, we, America is very different than a lot of countries, including Canada. Um, in America, we have the First Amendment, the freedom of the, the press is a constitutional right. Um, other countries do not. Um, they, they have um, enacted laws that restrict and limit the media's coverage of certain things. So in Canada or in the UK, um, a reporter can be held in contempt of court if they are reporting uh, you know, great details and facts about a case prior to the trial. And particularly the closer it gets to the jury trial itself, the greater the chance that's gonna happen. And um, prosecutions are rare, but it's the fact that, that that potential is out there that chills reporters and the media from covering cases in, in great factual detail. Uh, and many people think that's better. Um, and, you know, in a free society, it probably is better, frankly. It's better in terms of getting a, a free, unbiased, fair jury. Uh, but it also raises the potential for abuse as well, because in a, you know, in a, a free society, uh, the media is often sort of what keeps politicians and the government officials honest, because they know that if, uh, you know, people are watching what they're doing. So it's, a, it's an interesting tension in America that you don't see elsewhere. And um, unfortunately, it's not gonna change in America unless somebody amends the constitution because the, the, you know, the freedom of the press is, is so important in this country. It's got so, so entrenched that uh, the ability to, to rein in and, and limit uh, the media is, is virtually nil. Uh, the one, one exception, by the way, about that is when it comes to cameras in the courtroom. Uh, you know, the courts can ban cameras from the court entirely. And uh, historically they often did, in fact, usually did. Uh, in federal court, it's still banned. Uh, you cannot have cameras in the courtroom. And uh, you know, th there's so much misinformation going around. I saw a Facebook post once, or really just last week, I think, um, that was criticizing uh, the Maxwell trial and saying, you know, look at this. You know, we saw everything about Rittenhouse was being live streamed. It's because he was a, a gun supporter, you know, that they did this because look at Maxwell was charged with sex offenses and, and she's not, they don't even allow cameras in the courtroom. Well, that of course is ridiculous. There is a federal rule and always has been that cameras cannot be allowed in the courtroom. And there used to be rules like that all over the, the country in state courts that uh, has changed in the last 25, 30 years, but still remains the case in federal court. I've, I've always found it so, so on a more um, humorous note, I've always found it so funny when new media outlets attempt to report from the courtroom and they have to have the sketches <laughs> and some of them are just so bad. And then in my head, I'm like, 
how does one become a court I guess sketch, sketch artist. Sketch artist, to, yeah. Yeah, it's like very niche, niche profession. Right. Um, on on the note, on the side of the media um, and and its and its role, um, one of the from some of the more measured folks who followed both the Arbery or Mike Michael and Rittenhouse trial um, was kind of the general conclusion that maybe the American justice system isn't quite as rotten um as some say it and 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 inferred that both verdicts were um the appropriate ones and that this is showing that there is still some substance to the core that holds the justice system together um so on the mcmichaels case in the same way for the rittenhouse case what is your view on how that case transpired and the ultimate verdict you know the the similarity between those cases is is that in both instances the the um, the acts which formed the charge were not in dispute really. Um, it, the defendants were admitting that they shot. The question is were they privileged legally in doing so? And in the Rittenhouse case, it was self defense. Um, and in the uh, McMichael case, there was the additional layer of this citizen arrest that's right to uh, to a very unusual archaic common law right in that the state of Georgia had for citizen arrest, which has now been repealed, by the way, after this offense came to light. But it was still an, an effect and, and uh, a legal defense in their case. Uh, I think there was also a, a very difference in the, uh, a big difference, from my opinion, in the quality of the prosecution. I thought the prosecution in the Georgia case was, uh, was excellent. Um, they were, they did a really good job dealing with uh, the, uh, the, the defense that was raised, uh, not so much in the Wisconsin case at all. Um, so, you know, did, was it the right verdict in both of those cases? Um, you know, the jury says that it was. And, uh, you know, you have to give some credit to in the Georgia case to the fact that there were 11 white people on that jury, one, one black person uh, involving the shooting by white people of a, an unarmed black man who they were chasing. And so a lot of people thought that we would not, you know, that he would get off or they would get off from the, the charges, so to speak, because of the race issue, and that did not happen. And so I think we do need to give some credit there to the justice system and, and being um, colorblind, you know, given the facts of that trial. Uh, does that mean that the system isn't still broken in my mind? Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean, of course, these are two cases out of thousands that happen every day. The vast, vast majority are... Um, Nobody's watching, and when nobody's watching at all, um, things happen that should not happen, whether it's corruption or just incompetence or uh, unfair balance. Uh, that is the norm in America. Um, so what do you think... Moving forward from some of we have about a minute left. So moving forward from from some of these large trials, do you think that increased attention 
and viewership on some of these high-profile cases will aid the criminal justice reform movement? Well, you know, it's interesting how uh, I, I think um, picking individual cases to try and reform or change the criminal justice system is a serious mistake mm -hmm. because uh, what we really need to do is a more measured, thoughtful deliberation about our justice system, where the flaws are, how we can improve them. And those decisions can be done in a democratic way, we would hope in a bipartisan way, uh, instead of the way we have it now, which is uh, this reaction to individual cases, anecdotes, uh, much of the laws and state legislatures now, or bills that come at least, uh, come from angry constituents who call their own representative and say, there ought to be a law against this, or this mm -hmm. is unfair, or, this is what happened. And um, you see it now in Wisconsin with the, the terrible Waukesha Christmas parade tragedy where the, uh, much of the focus, at least at the beginning, was on the, the, the fact that this gentleman was released on a thousand dollars cash bail. How could mm -hmm. that be? Uh, we get, obviously the system's broken. We have to change all of our bail pro and it was a pushback against um, a cash bail reform effort that has been sweeping the country. But interestingly enough, it has not taken root in Wisconsin. We, we are not part of that movement. We, there's been no change in our cash bail system. And yet people, so, you know, certain people used that, this incident, this horrible case to push back against the, the movement nationwide. Um, you know, it's a human system, mistakes get made. Some of those mistakes we just can't, we have to learn to live with and we can try and adjust and make our system better. But to do so based on one high profile case or a handful of high profile cases is, uh, is a mistake, I think. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Well, thank you again, Jerry, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. It has been a pleasure, um, and we will certainly have you back in the near future. Thank you. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, -S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
Jesus. We in have... the name of Jesus. Oh, thank you. Hallelujah. 